As someone who spends a lot of time teaching and researching various aspects of culture, I find it fascinating when I look at the most popular or long-lasting hymns in our Christian and Catholic repertoire, how there are certain texts that come from one particular cultural tradition, but really have become adopted and owned by almost every tradition and in you know almost any time period. And one of the texts that I think has done the best job of this, or is the best example, is the text of the traditional Irish blessing. Yeah, I don't think it's overstating it to say that the Irish blessing for some people is just as important of a part of their spirituality as the Lord's Prayer, as uh, the Hail Mary, uh, the Prayer of St. Francis. Uh, These are words that we just grow up saying and praying time and time again. I mean, what do you think that's owed to, Matt? You know, I'm not sure, um, but I, I can attest to what you're saying. In my, you know, central Minnesota German Catholic parish, um, we sing these Irish words and pray these Irish images as well as we do just about anything else. It also speaks to the fact that we like to commemorate points of transition uh, by singing and by blessing people as we send them forth. Uh, As we head into the summer, it is prime time for ceremonies of transitions. I'm talking about graduations, uh, weddings. Uh, This is a time when people often uh, start new jobs or move to new schools. And uh, blessing and sending forth is a big part of that. Um, So I think it's especially appropriate that we're going to look at this song of blessing. So please open your hymnal to May the Road Rise to Meet You. My name is Lori True, and I am campus minister for music and liturgy at St. Catherine University in St. Paul, Minnesota. I had just started writing probably maybe a year prior to this song being crafted and I was taken by this young woman that I was working with who was actually babysitting my children and she was over at our house and saw the beautiful poem of the Irish blessing and this is a gal who has Ireland all over her face beautiful red hair just a beautiful bubbly personality and she did not know what this was at all and she said how beautiful what a beautiful poem and I said Laura you do not know the Irish blessing. You are almost full-blooded Irish. And she's like, no, I had never heard of it. And so she was 17 at the time, about ready to graduate, and just a lovely, lovely young woman. And so I decided to make a gift for her by setting this song. Additionally, I kind of wanted a little more meat to be a part of this this particular composition, and I went right to Ecclesiastes 3 because I think that in all those seasons of our lives, there is blessing, whether it be the joy, the grief, no matter what we're experiencing, there is blessing in everything that we 
are a part of. So that's how that got woven together. I also like to take texts from scripture and sit with them and think about what God is calling me to say about these particular texts. So I've taken some liberty in choosing the way in which I see those different times in our lives and where blessing is needed. This is a really important point to emphasize, Zach. I mean, as we we talked about it in the introduction, that this is a text, the Irish blessing, that is so well known and so well loved to people regardless of culture or background. But in this particular song, not only do we have that text, we also have another one of these really well-loved texts, the text to Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season. So in this piece, we kind of get a one-two punch in terms of uh, important texts that mean a lot to people, that say a lot to people, both in good times and in bad. And I think that really helps unlock some of the keys to why this piece is so well-loved to so many people all over the world. school we had a beautiful choral version that we sang and that was one of the versions that I had to be very very careful about not sort of for lack of word better wording stealing from Um, and I loved it so it was a prayer that was very near and dear to my heart near and dear to my both my mom and my grandma so it was probably going to be set at some point Um, but I think that Laura and the Holy Spirit were the ones that worked to get it set at that time. The words for the verse just flowed out of what I was writing, and it was easy for me to do. The words for that beautiful poem, that Irish blessing, were a little more difficult because I wanted a more inclusive languaged stanza. I wanted something that didn't have God named with a male pronoun. So that's why I chose to shift the ending. And then it fit really, really well with the melody that was coming. One of the joys for me in doing this podcast has been getting to hear these different composers talk about their approaches to crafting melody. Um, I was excited to talk to Lori about that same thing. When I find a text that is inspiring to me, I literally will go and take that text and lay down on my bed, on my back, and look at it and see what happens so I don't write at the piano. I I learned later that, yes, that's a good idea from Marty Haugen, don't write at the piano, because then I think you can box yourself into specific kind of chord progressions and whatnot. So I often will write just laying on my bed, actually sometimes in the shower, Um, and just saying the words, and then all of a sudden they become a melody. And sometimes it's a labor of love, of weeks on end, like a piece called You Are All I Want took me months to write, or sometimes it's a piece like this that almost wrote itself as I was penning the way in which I wanted these words to sit. What do you think, Zach? I mean, as a liturgical composer, does does what Laurie describes ring true for you also? You know, I'm not going to lie, Matt. Um, 
I was stuck on something this last week, and I may or may not have also tried to lay on my bed and see if anything came to me. Um, nothing quite did in that way. But yeah, it is it is true. Um, and we'll actually hear in David Haas's episode coming up that sometimes songs come very fast, and sometimes it really is um, a lot of work to get through them. Well, thanks a lot for that, Zach. Instead of picturing composers, you know, hunched over their piano or writing with their quills by candlelight, now I'll be forced to think of all of you laying on your backs or in the shower, and I'm not quite sure that I'm going to be able to get over that. One of the things that I, I wouldn't say pride myself on, but I work very, very hard to not have happen is to sound like other people. Because I work so closely with David Haas and some of the other composers, and I sing so much of their music, especially his, when we do concerts and whatnot, I was really very conscious of making sure my own voice was able to be heard. So when I write a melody, I'll often show it to several different people that I work with, like who work in church work on a regular basis and um, make sure, does this sound like anything you've ever heard? It's one of the first questions I ask. Is this a singable melody? But are you sure? Does it sound like something you've heard? Because sometimes when we write, we are so close to this new creation that it's hard for us to separate ourselves from what we've just created. And so oftentimes songs will take me a really long time and sometimes new melodies for the same text will come two and three times before I actually will say okay I think this might be done. For me one of the things that sets Lori's compositions apart and helps her to not sound like other people uh, is the way she does her vocal part writing. Um, if you look at Lori's music, uh, you'll see that there are, are a lot of passing distances between the between the voices. Uh, the way that she stacks uh, the voices is is different than many composers. And each line could almost be sung as a melody unto itself. It was near the beginning of all of my writing. And so part writing was kind of not my forte. And I actually had a very well-known published composer, Christopher Walker, say to me that he really enjoyed the part writing that I wrote, which was very kind of probably rudimentary, I think, for the time. Um, He liked it because it had, um, each of the different parts had their own specific melody. And that's kind of how I was approaching part writing at the time within the chord progression but its own kind of distinct melody and for him that's an interesting thing for others I'm not quite sure and then since then I have learned obviously some of the rules the do's and the don'ts of what you should do for part writing it's been a while since I've written much of my own part writing actually and thinking back i was trying to follow the pathos of the song. When I think about the song, I Cry to You, If Only You Would Hear Me, to me it was the most gut-wrenching thing that I could scream to God. 
And as we know, the Psalms are filled with so many different emotions, and this is a place where God can truly handle everything we throw at God, right? And so that piece has the most unbelievable crunch I think I've ever written, actually, when you actually add the descant to the four part, which is already kind of a crunchy endeavor or a very dissonant endeavor. So I really try to think about the song itself. When I wrote Let This Be The Time, which I was very passionate about, because I felt that in my own life I wasn't still getting it. As much as I was praying these songs, as much as I was trying to live a life of justice, I still wasn't getting it. And I'm like, God, let this be the time, let this be the time. And so that piece also has some interesting dissonant as well, dissonance as well because I felt that the passion of the song needed it. May the Road Rise was just an endeavor in, as a young composer, trying to keep all the parts interested in singing. As a soprano, melody is so, so important. But when I went to craft the alto part, I thought, oh my gosh, this is so boring. So I think that was my very young and inexperienced lens trying to just make it an interesting endeavor for the altos as well as the third part. When I set a song called God Give Us Peace That Lasts, I had first stumbled on the text in the hymnal and it was set with um, John Bell, is the writer of that text, or the Iona community. And he set it to a very interestingly woven melody that I felt, for me, was difficult to pray. It was such a powerful text that I wanted to try an experiment. And the experiment was that the melody itself would be pretty much sitting on the same note. I think there are maybe two to three notes that that song allows the soprano to sing. And I say allows because oftentimes sopranos hate singing that piece. They love melody. But the altos actually have a little more of an interesting part and so do the tenors. So I did that purposefully because I did not want anything to get in the way of what I considered that text to be so powerful. So I don't necessarily have a prescribed sort of like formula that I use for each song. I, I just approach each one of my compositions that I actually do the part writing for um, from that individual perspective of that particular text. May the Road Rise came out of a very early experience for me in my writing career. And while I loved the piece very much, had I had the process that I use now, I probably would have changed a few of the notes. And I say that because the process I use now is that before it ever has an opportunity to even sometimes get fully engraved for me, I will bring it to a very sort of ordinary skilled choir for them to sing. And that would be the women that I work with. If they can't sing it well, 
those who sing every single week, then there's a problem. If they keep making the same mistake on a certain phrase or whatnot, and there is one in May the Road Rise, if they keep making that same mistake, then I need to be humble enough to say, I didn't finish this piece yet, and go back and make an edit or make, make some changes to it. So I would say that it's important for not only your colleagues to hear your songs and give some good, honest feedback, but I would say also try it with choirs, not in the context of liturgy, but definitely at rehearsal or, hey, would you all consider staying so we can so we can sing through this and see what we think and get their feedback and ask them to be honest. This process that Lori just described reminds me a lot of the conversation we had with Marty Haugen when we were discussing his piece, All Are Welcome, because it places the emphasis of these songs on accessibility, um, making sure that congregations and music ministers of all abilities are able to sing and pray this song in an authentic way. And not only in the songwriting process can we hear this, but this is also evident in the way that Lori describes her approach to the recording of this song and some of the decisions that she made in that recording process. When I was able to record May the Road Rise, I was really excited because I wanted to share this song beyond my group of friends and colleagues. And when it was able to go on my first collection, that was just such a gift to me. And so I had my friend David play very simply piano, and I just had choir, no instrumentation, very simple arrangement. And the reason why I chose to do this this way, because I do have other songs where I've, where I've added many different instruments and synthesizer and percussion and on and on. But this one I chose to do very simply because I really wanted the text to really flower and speak um, as much or as well as it was intended to. At this point, Zach, I think we should go back to your question that you posed at the beginning of the episode. And that is, you know, the wonderment of why is this song coming from one particular cultural tradition so popular and so transcendent to other times and places and cultural traditions? There are a lot of songs and prayers and blessings that I think we know by heart. But what I think sets this text and this blessing apart is its use of simple, uh, concrete imagery. Uh, Sunshine, rainfall, the road rising, uh, the loving arms of God. These are all images that all ages, all cultures uh, can identify with. And I think when it's married to uh, as beautiful a tune as what Laurie said, um, I think you just really have something special there. I think you're right. I think the accessibility of that imagery, its simplicity, makes it something that a wide swath of people, regardless of culture or nationality or language, can relate to and identify with. I think also the American church really is able to claim some sort of hand in the success and longevity of this piece in the sense that as a melting pot, um, you know, especially in American Catholicism, 
we have so many people who can claim Irish ancestry or some sort of affiliation or connection to Irish heritage. And I think that goes a long way in embedding this song and this text in our own DNA. I think another indicator of how special this particular setting of the Irish blessing is, is how popular the song is in Ireland itself, the birthplace of this blessing. It's sung in churches and schools and communities across the country, and it's really well loved there. For me, one of the most impressive uses of this song actually came about six years ago in 2011, when the Queen of the United Kingdom, Elizabeth II, made a historic visit to Ireland. And during her visit, the Cashel Community School, a group of young people, chose this song to sing for Her Majesty the Queen. And so it was interesting to me to find out more from Laurie as a composer, what's it like when a piece of yours gets sung for someone who is so globally recognized as Elizabeth II? One of my really good friends, Ian Callanan, another wonderful published composer, called me 3 a.m. in the morning to say, oh my gosh, we are singing your blessing for the queen, which was a histor historical moment anyway for her to be going to Ireland. So that was quite an honor and blessing to be able to see that and view it for myself because her Secret Service folks were trying to pull her away from the youth and she was definitely saying, no, 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 I want to stay and listen to this. Ireland has been a great home for my version of May the Road Rise and so I kind of take pride in that because of all of the beautiful settings, it is one that has made it through the school systems and churches around the entire country. Writing a blessing is a very challenging endeavor. And I know this so well because for the Music Ministry Alive program that I'm so heavily involved in with the liturgical aspects, I am constantly looking for the most appropriate blessing for the most appropriate groups and then for what is happening in the world. And that's a hard thing to find. I myself have set three blessings and I work really hard to make them very inclusive. However, if it gets so broad, then you lose sight of what's most important. One comes from the beautiful Japanese sisters of St. Joseph who have a blessing that speaks Kirisuto no Heiwaga, which is may your heart be as full as it can be, which I think is the most beautiful image and it's a gorgeous melody that they gave me permission to set. And the other is a beautiful Brian Wren text, Go Now in Peace, that I wedded with beautiful Celtic melody. As an Irish girl, Celtic melodies are near and dear to my heart, so I believe that they are very hard to set, and I'm always looking for really good settings. So anyone who feels like they should, or that feels that they are inspired to write, that they believe that God is calling them, especially our young women, you have a beautiful lens in which we need to hear from and 
to pray with and to sing on our lips. I think women have a very different way of looking at not only the challenges of life, but the beauty of life. Not that it's better, but it's definitely different than some of our male composers. I think Lori's call to women composers is an important one. Uh, You've probably realized this is our first episode featuring a woman composer. Of course, we plan to feature many more. Uh, This is a great time for women composers in a field that historically has been um, dominated by more of a male presence. Uh, There are a lot of voices uh, now getting heard, now getting supported. Uh, So we were interested to hear uh, Lori's perspective on being a woman composer. I have been blessed by some of these wonderful partners in ministry, namely Marty Helgen, who was the producer of my first recording, and David Haas, who is a partner in ministry. Um, To have them as advocates for me and the music that I write, they've been very, very supportive of what I've offered, and I'm very blessed in that light. I do feel that I need to work harder because there is a history of so many years there being mostly dominating the field of liturgical writers, the male perspective. So it's an educating that I think I need to do, and it's also speaking up for myself in a world where it's mostly in leadership by men. Even the recording process has been one that's been a beautiful process, but also a very difficult process. I am often, when I'm recording my own music, the only female in the room. And while some may say, well, St. Kate's charges women to leadership, that's all well and good, but it's so much more energy that I feel I need to expend that um, perhaps some of my male friends don't need to because it's just an accepted thing as opposed to something that's very new and different. I'm glad to be one of the newer or fewer women that are composing, and I am always looking for that young woman composer that I can mentor or encourage, and I often do, especially when I have the blessing of going out on the road. You know, Zach, I know that you qualified this as a good time or a great time for women composers. And I think I agree with you, but I think we also have to be careful about how we qualify that. I mean, I think if if somebody today went to a hymnal and looked at the composer index, to be sure there are more women's names that appear. But I think there's still a long way to go, both in terms of the balance between individual composers and especially in terms of the numbers of compositions themselves that are included um, between men and women composers. I think you're right. Uh, The number of women composers uh, and, and songs of theirs featured in hymnals is surely not proportionate or representative of uh, the presence uh, that women have, both in positions of leadership uh, and ministry. Um, You know, it's hard selecting songs uh, for this podcast because really we are selecting the songs that have become, or at least have reached a certain level of ubiquity. uh, And many of those songs have needed a long time to sink into kind of our collective 
consciousness. And so because of that, many of the songs were written in the mid 80s, maybe some early 90s, uh, and even earlier when uh, the industry uh, was very much uh, dominated uh, by male composers. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think that's a that's a good explanation for the situation that we find ourselves in now. You know, when I think about how do we how do we turn that tide or what are the questions that we should be asking ourselves as we take stock of the the different perspectives that we include in the music that we sing? Um, and, you know, maybe we'll get some comments about this, but the way I feel about it is not unlike what I do when I prepare the classes I teach at my university. When I select my readings, I am very intentional about making sure that I have multiple perspectives represented from age and culture and time period and race and especially gender. I don't want to have all of my readings from one particular perspective. Not that there's anything wrong with any individual perspective, but I don't want the experience to be insular. And I think for music directors, I don't know necessarily that that's the same type of consideration that's at the forefront of people's minds. I don't know if it's a common thought. I think we've come a long way in having people consider culture and language, especially when we look at the people who are living in our communities. But I don't think we do that same thing when it comes to gender, when it comes to that viewpoint or that perspective or that worldview when we look at the music that we've chosen to sing. And maybe that's a mindset that needs to be encouraged so that these songs that are written by female composers or with this unique perspective do become ubiquitous, just like all of those classics that were written 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years ago. I think that's true. I think, you know, there's a lot that's being done um, to expose us more to the music that's being written all around the world by all uh, different kind of people um, from all different cultural backgrounds. Um, and I think it's important that our music reflect the world church. Um, and it cannot do that unless there's equal representation. And it's, it's something we should be mindful of as we're selecting music for Sunday liturgy. I'm so evidently aware that that lens that we offer is one that is so needed by our church. I am most often told that my songs are very simple. And at first when I would hear this years back, I'd be like, oh, this is not a good thing. But then it was clarified to me, no, 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 no. Simple and very easy for us to pray. And that made me feel, well, that's different. This is something good then. This is where God wants me to be sharing my gifts. And now... Here is a recording of May the Road Rise to Meet You in its entirety. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to the Open Your Hymnal podcast. May the Road Rise to Meet You is published by GIA Publications. The recording you heard was released by GIA Publications on the album A Place at the Table. Links to this material and other resources can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. We'd like to specially thank Lori True for this interview. Production assistance and support was also provided by Marty Haugen, David Haas, Michelle Hugue, and St. Catherine University. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes. Our next episode will feature an interview with composer David Haas and his song, You Are Mine. I will come to you. Some of the artistic process for a lot of people is that they compose out of what they hope for, what they want, not necessarily what they know or are, or feel that they, that's really real for them at the moment. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. I was very afraid. I felt very much alone. Um, I have called you each by name. I felt very invisible. You know, um, come and follow me. I will bring you home. I felt homeless. I love you and you are mine. I felt very unloved. I felt very or are unable to love. So it's a contradiction in many ways. For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Matt Reichert. And I'm Zach Stahowski. Thanks for listening.